You know, for the last few weeks, it seems like Lent is speeding by. Um, We have been walking on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus. We know that he set his eyes on Jerusalem, and along the way, he preached and he taught and he healed, and we've learned that there is a, a cost to being a disciple. And we've learned that Jesus calls upon us to love all of our neighbors, especially those who are suffering, and also those who are not our favorite neighbors. And that's an important thing for us to remember. Last week, we learned that we're supposed to find a rhythm in our life, a time to be busy, busy for God, and a time to sit at Jesus' feet and soak up his love and his wisdom. And today, we're going to continue down that road to Jerusalem by taking a peek in on a scene that took place on a Sabbath morning when Jesus did something that was um, unconventional. And I am going to read uh, our text this morning from Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. You know, there's more than a couple stories in our scriptures about Jesus having confrontations with religious leaders over rules that were broken, either related to the Sabbath day or washing or whatever. And today is just one of those stories. But I ask you for a moment to put yourselves in the shoes of that bent over woman. She had just spent 18 years walking around, bent over at the waist, looking at the ground and dirty feet. She probably didn't have too many friends because in those days, people believed that if someone was afflicted that way, that they were being punished for some kind of wrongdoing. So imagine her complete joy and elation when she has this encounter with a traveling rabbi who's teaching at the synagogue and who takes a moment to take care of her and healed her. We should think, wow, all is right with the world that day. The scripture tells us she stood up and she rejoiced. Everyone should have been happy, right? Nope, it's not the way it worked. There was a religious leader who wasn't happy. The synagogue leader, because the rules were broken. And he scolded the people and said, don't come to the synagogue on the Sabbath to be healed. Come the other six days of the week. What's wrong with you? And Jesus was having absolutely none of it and looked at him and said, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. 
on a Sabbath day, you untie your ox or your cow or your goat or whatever you have and you lead them to water, you untether them. Shouldn't this woman, this child of Abraham, this beloved child of God, be untethered from the affliction visited upon her by Satan? Is she less important than an ox or a cow? And in that moment, the people rejoiced. The woman praised God. And Jesus made a few more enemies of religious leaders. But I wonder when I read that story, if Jesus was here right now uh, in the flesh, I know he's here right now, but I mean right here, right in front of us, beard, flesh, robes, the whole nine yards. If he would look at me and say, Pam, you hypocrite, you hold grudges over things that you should let go of, you speak an unkind word sometimes about a brother or sister. You lose your temper. You judge others harshly when they don't think the way you think or when they don't follow the rules that you make more important than relationships. And I'm thinking that Jesus might say that to me, and I would suggest you could think about it too. Okay, fair enough. And then Jesus did what he often does. He completely switched gears and he told some parables to make a teaching point. And those parables at first blush might seem not to have any relationship to the story that I just read to you about the bent over woman. So I'm going to continue to read this morning from Luke's gospel chapter 13, the two parables. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through all of the dough. You know, the point of these stories is that Jesus can take just a small bit of something and make it into something really big. And that's what he does with the kingdom. If you see a mustard seed, if you had a handful of them, it would look like you had a handful of sand. The seeds are so tiny. They're nothing like a coconut or a tulip bulb. They're tiny little seeds. And yet when they're planted in a garden and cultivated, they can grow as big as a tree. They can be mistaken for a tree, even though it's really a bush. A tree is so big that Birds can nest in its branches. But we need to remember that the gardener did something to help it along. And we're called to do things to help the kingdom grow as well. Yeast works the same way. It just takes a little bit of yeast mixed with flour to make a lot of bread. Life-sustaining bread. But again, in our daily lives, it takes a human, a baker, to help mix the ingredients and knead the dough. See, the important thing about these parables is they not only remind us that the kingdom grows from very small acts and very small things, it reminds us that we actually have a role to play that God wants to share with us, but we need to understand our roles. We participate in the growth of God's kingdom, but we don't control the timing, nor do we control the yield. That's up to God. We just do our part and leave the miraculous part to God. We pray for the kingdom when we say the Lord's Prayer. We say, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 
And the kingdom is coming on earth, but it's not complete yet. We're kind of like kingdom on an island surrounded by the world. But it's growing. And God does the miraculous work of growth. And we say yes when God asks us to be a baker or a gardener. But to get back to the first story I read to you, you might wonder, how is this story, how are these parables connected to the bent-over woman? Why would Jesus place those two parables right here in Luke chapter 13? Not Jesus, Luke wrote them, inspired by Jesus. Why would they be there? They weren't there in Matthew. In Matthew's gospel, there was a whole string of parables, one right after the other. These were among them. These are the two short ones. But they weren't after a story like we just read. Fred Craddock, who's a wonderful preacher and an even better theologian, he said he thought that Luke put those two stories right there so we would begin to understand that Jesus does big things with just a little bit. That something huge can grow out of something that starts out very small. Think about the story I told you. It was one woman who benefited, and the people in the synagogue rejoiced. And I have visited a synagogue out in the countryside in the Holy Land, and they're not that big. When I went to the Holy Land, we visited the synagogue in, in uh, Capernaum, and it's not that big. So there wasn't thousands of people who saw this. Jesus Jesus' little act, though, let one woman and those people know what it meant to be part of the kingdom. Few were impacted, a tiny bit of growth, because Jesus decided to risk controversy. Jesus decided to do the next right thing and to place human relationships ahead of rigid rules something we would do well to remember today. So we might now be saying to ourselves, okay, how does this relate to me in the here and now? I'm not Jesus. I can't walk on water. I can't touch a leper and heal them. I can't take a few loaves and fishes and feed 5,000 people. All I can do is be nice when I'm out in the world bear witness and invite people to church. And they're not going to meet Jesus in person here doing a, a, a healing. That can't possibly be as good. But Jesus tells us not only is it as good, it's better. In John's gospel, John wrote, quoting Jesus in the red letter words that we find that signify Jesus is speaking, very truly I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. We will do greater things than what Jesus did because Jesus went to the Father. He didn't mean that we were going to go out to the gulf and walk on the water or we were going to feed multitudes with just a little or that we were going to heal people with one touch of our hand. I think what Jesus meant when he said those words is that we were going to be empowered to have an enormous yield of disciples, of relationships, compared to what he was able to do in biblical times. 
because we are armed with the resurrection story. When Jesus returned to the Father, he left us with the story of the cross, but then the empty tomb. He left us with the story, the salvation story, the gospel that we can share with others. And we have the ability to share that today with way more people. We have email, we have computers, we have television, we have radio, we have telephones, we have word of mouth. And they're all of you in this room, if you went out and did what Jesus did, think how many people would be impacted by learning about the kingdom. You know, I'd like to share a, a real-life story with you this morning about a man who understood what it meant to participate in the growth of God's kingdom. And that man was my Uncle Carl. When I was little, I had an auntie. Her name was Auntie Mella. Actually, she was my mom's oldest sister. Her name was Carmella. I was one of the oldest nieces, and I couldn't say Carmella for nothing. So she became Auntie Mella, and she was Auntie Mella the rest of her life. Now, my Uncle Carl, whoa, sorry about that. My Uncle Carl came here. I get excited about Uncle Carl. He was such a good guy. Uncle Carl came here from Italy when he was a young man. He enlisted in the army and went and fought in World War I. When he came home, he married my Aunt Carmela. He became the gardener and chauffeur for a wealthy family in Cleveland, Ohio. And eventually, he became my Uncle Carl. And he loved to garden. That man had row after row of tomatoes, corn, green peppers, cucumbers, you name it. He grew it all. He had fig trees. He used to grow zucchini this big so that when you cut them open, they were dry as a bone and, and not really that great to eat. But he knew that if he was patient, something really large would grow from a little seed. But he was also a baker, and that was the best part of day-to-day -day life with Uncle Carl. He used to get out his bread pan on Tuesday mornings and Saturday mornings. It was this big around. I'm not, graduate. I'm not uh, exaggerating. And he would put flour in it, and he would add some yeast, and he would pour in some liquid. I don't remember if it was water or milk, and he would start kneading that dough. And when it got thick, he would punch it. He would punch it, and he would do this. You can tell from that picture up there. Uncle Carl wore a white shirt and a black tie on Sundays, but when he was baking bread, he wore one of those ribbed T-shirts with no sleeves, that round man. And I understood why he didn't add salt to the dough because the sweat was flying as he was pounding that dough. And, and we'd always, yeah, yuck is right, but we're still here, you know? <laughs> but we're still here, even with his sweat in that dough. And, after he was done kneading the dough, he'd put a cloth over it, and we'd have to wait for the dough to rise. And we couldn't wait. We just couldn't wait because he used to take that dough, and in addition to big loaves of bread, he'd make these little tiny loaves that were called panutzes. They were kid-sized loaves, and when you put butter on those right out of the oven, that was the best. But we used to complain, Uncle Carl, it's taking too long. Hurry up, hurry up. And he used to say, no, no, you've got to be patient. It takes time. But Uncle Carl was also patient when it came to making disciples. Because, you see, he was a huge influence on a bunch of us growing up. He was a man who put on his 
white shirt and black tie and went to the Pentecostal Assembly of God, the Italian service. And when the pastor was praying, Uncle Carl would be going, Gloria Patre, and I'd be so embarrassed. You know, and now I do the same thing, only I do it in English. The truth is, Uncle Carl loved Jesus. He taught us to pray before meals. He would put his elbows on the table and put his head in his hands and he'd go, Gloria Patri, Padre in heaven. And he'd go on and on and on while the food got cold. But Uncle Carl loved Jesus and he loved us. And because we knew he loved Jesus, we learned to love Jesus too. And we learned that things take time to grow in a garden or in a bread bowl, but Uncle Carl knew that the kingdom took time to grow in us. Now, Uncle Carl died in 1980. Among his children, grandchildren, and great-grandkids and son-in-law, he had a pastor who served that church that he worshiped at for 42 years, He had a church organist, a music minister, three missionaries, two campus pastors, and a prodigal niece who came to the party too late. I wonder how many folks that that group of people have touched. How many folks have learned about God's kingdom and God's love because Uncle Carl took time to love all of us. Friends, that's Jesus' math. That's the way Jesus' math works. Because of Jesus' math, which is only multiplication, no division, no division, no subtraction, and addition isn't enough. Multiplication, because Jesus' math is multiplication. The kingdom grows taller and wider every day. Now, there's one more thing about living in the kingdom that's really important. It's a community that we can count on during times of trouble. It's a community that we can turn to when we're hurting or we have a trial to face. Last week, Pastor Don talked about Mary and Martha and how we're supposed to find a rhythm between sitting at Jesus' feet and being busy for the kingdom. I would add a third thing to that. Sometimes we have to just sit and let the kingdom envelop us in a time of trial. And too many of us don't do that. We try to go it alone, but the kingdom is not for loners. The kingdom is not some place that we escape from in a time of trouble. And I'm facing one of those times right now, and I want to share this with you today. I learned about 10 days or so ago that I have breast cancer. Now, I want you to know, we could not have caught it earlier than we did. The prognosis is incredible. If you gotta have cancer, I got the right kind, if there is such a thing. And I'm sharing this with you today because I covet your prayers, because you are kingdom dwellers with me, and I don't wanna keep this to myself when you could be praying for me. 
I want to share this with you today because I trust God with this. And just as we sang, we sang a song about God's goodness a few minutes ago. And I still believe that God is good in every single circumstance, including this one. And I hope that you can believe that too when life throws you a curveball. You know, shortly after I got my diagnosis, I heard a song and it's just like, playing through my head over and over. And the song is called Dancing on the Waves, and it's by a group called We the Kingdom. And it's supposed to be a song that we imagine Jesus singing to us. And the chorus goes like this. I'm not going to sing it because I love you. It says, I'm reaching out. I'll chase you down. I dare you to believe how much I love you now. Don't be afraid. I am your strength. We'll be walking on the water and dancing on the waves. And friends, whatever your circumstance, I invite you today. Dance on the waves with Jesus because I sure am and I'm not faking. You know, that invitation is to us every day. Whether we're sick whether we're grieving, whether we're broke, whether we're worrying about our kids, whether we suffer with addiction, we don't have to do it alone. It's easy to dance on waves when life is easy. It's harder to remember that we can keep dancing when life is a little hard. All of us can trust in God's kingdom life. And the reason we can trust in it is because Jesus took the road to Jerusalem. He walked to the cross, and on Easter morning, he walked out of the tomb. And we are called to share that news with those who are hurting. We are called to accept that victory as our own that solves our problem, that cures us even before we get sick. And so today, I invite you, accept that victory for yourself if you haven't already done so. Our battles can be hard, but we don't have to fight them alone because when we fight them in the name of Jesus, knowing the battle's already been won, the kingdom grows taller and wider, one person at a time.